Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mayor Greg Fisher podcast. I am Mayor Greg Fisher, joined by Dr. Monique Williams, our director of our Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about public safety, and obviously, uh, public safety is the number one job of any government. Uh, it is no secret that here in the summer and fall of 2021, most all American cities are struggling with an increase in gun violence. We're seeing that here in our city as well. So we're constantly learning and researching on what we can do to create an even safer city. You know, some people and a lot of people automatically just go to a law enforcement response saying we need more police. Uh, but history shows us that that doesn't, doesn't uh, equate to a solution and there's not a correlation between more police officers and a safer city. Certainly police are an essential part of creating a, pub, a, a safe city. But there's also a lot of other elements associated with that like prevention and intervention and community mobilization, reentry. We're going to talk a lot about those today because many of those fall under the purview of our Office for Safe and Healthy Neighbor Neighborhoods, which Dr. Williams leads for us. So today we want to talk about this whole system of public safety and a whole of government approach. That means all of the various government agencies, both metro government and our federal partners and state partners working together in a whole of city approach. So what are you, what are we doing as individual citizens and businesses and foundations doing to help as well? So a lot to cover here, Dr. Williams, and it's a lot to have on anyone person's responsibility as well. So to uh, maybe explain to our listeners uh, why you're our director and why you're uniquely equipped to deal with this strategy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to here today? Prior to this role, um, I was at the University of Louisville at the School of Public Health where I ran our National Center of Excellence for Youth Violence Prevention for the last uh, it was six years I was there. But for the last 15 years, my background is in public health. So I'm a public health practitioner, public health researcher, and my work has really been around engaging community in processes for addressing issues that they prioritize that impact various health outcomes. So very uh, community-based, community-based participatory research, community-engaged scholarship, and helping and walking community through the development of processes and programs initiatives to address whatever they prioritize and mainly for me that health outcome has been around violence prevention and really that we call it the triangle of violence which encompasses structural violence cultural violence as well as interpersonal violence and so varying initiatives to address those different kinds of things. And on the interpersonal violence side, focusing on community-based violence and um, youth violence more specifically. And your PhD is in? Public health, with a focus on youth violence prevention with that interconnection between um, interpersonal youth violence and structural violence. So it was that combination that attracted us to ask you if you would come lead our department because it's not as simple as people would think. And uh, you not. also need resources to attack this problem. And so would you talk a little bit about OCEAN, it's what we call our Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhood. Talk a little bit about their approach. We're fully funded for the first time. Not, I won't say fully, but we're broadly funded <laughs> yes. this time because we wanna have more resources when we come out with our rescue plan dollars. But tell us a little bit about what that approach looks like and what this funding means for your office. Sure. So. The approach looks like, I mean, so addressing violence from a public health lens. And with a public health lens that allows for us to 
look at the myriad of factors that play into the conditions that create environments that make violence more likely. A lot of times people are existing in environments where um, the choice of violence is really easy and sometimes it's also very mandatory. And so what can we do to more holistically address the needs of individuals? And a lot of times we're dealing with people understand Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when people are in need, um, that puts them in desperate places to do things that they may not otherwise do. And so how are we addressing um, even the basic needs of people? And so you're looking at housing, you're looking at employment, you're looking at economic development, you're looking at, um, this is why it's a whole of government approach, right? Because all of those things live in different places, but all of those things impact our, um, and are related to risk factors that increase the likelihood of violence. And so developing out a comprehensive approach, an approach that is based in the evidence of what we know works and doesn't work related to violence prevention, but is also very community-centered and community-driven. Um, so the communities who are mostly impacted needing to be engaged, but then also the broader community and understanding that when our most vulnerable hurt, we all hurt. And so how do we engage um, the city as a whole? And so that's really the focus of our strategies coming from our office. And so being, I think the question was, I guess, what does it mean to have this funding? And it means having the capacity to address the issue in the ways that we know we need to. And so very thankful that, you know, Metro Council made the decision to fund us to be able to support the work that we know needs to be done. And so we look at it through a six pillar approach. Maybe you can run quickly through those six pillars and how they relate to each other. So we have prevention, intervention, community mobilization, reentry, organizational change, and then enforcement. For me within the office and for the strategies that we have, we kind of have large buckets of prevention and intervention through which community mobilization, organizational change, and reentry strategies, as well as enforcement kind of exist. Um, you know, we don't hold the reins for all of those things, but the operationalization of those things within our two big bucket strategies is kind of what makes sense for um, the level of resourcing that we have right now. Okay, so, you know, people focus on law enforcement, and more police, but what we're trying to do is stop crime from happening in the first place. And the unfortunate reality is that some people find themselves in a situation that might have a lot more crime in it than others. They might have challenges in life that others don't. So we're finding that if you can proactively invest to prevent or intervene, we don't have to get to the law enforcement side. So talk a little bit about that. What we know based on research and best practice is to deal with the issues of violence, you have to deal with all of what people are dealing with. Um, and so the strategies that we have really, so on the, and we know that we need intervention, right? So there are conditions already created, people who are already prime to potentially engage in things that they shouldn't. So we do have a high risk population. Um, and I like to call them our high potential population who have a really high potential to make some significant changes. And so for that population though, there are specific interventions that we know work. And so what we're trying to do with our intervention strategy, um, which everybody is becoming familiar with as our Pivot to Peace initiative, is to really build out a community violence 
intervention ecosystem, essentially, and help everybody understand where they fit within that ecosystem. Because again, it's, it's not even just a whole of government, but whole of city approach that needs to be engaged in that um, initiative. And so within that, we have our hospital violence intervention program. We have our community violence intervention grants where we um, essentially have the interrupters community violence intervention work for the people who are out in community doing the intervention work. And then we hold um, the intervention side of our group violence intervention, which again is that direct connection and engagement with high-risk individuals. And then our coordinated crisis response after a critical incident has taken place. Um, and so it's the coordination of all of those efforts and helping people understand where they fit and where they sit within that intervention strategy. And I mean, that's everybody, that's the school system, that is government agencies, that's our hospital and healthcare system, um, and also general community too. And so you get into some overlap in the intervention and prevention work because, you know, within our prevention system, we have our ambassador institute where we are wanting to help educate, build capacity and um, advocate for the things that we know that need to happen on the side of prevention. And so we have our ambassador program that is available to any and every citizen in the city where we are helping citizens become equipped to engage in violence prevention work within that program. Um, they learn about conflict resolution and de-escalation. They learn about um, suicide and mental health, kind of mental health first aid and how to engage if, if somebody is suicidal. Um, they learn, now we've added Stop the Bleed trainings, thanks to Norton Children's Hospital, who is partnering with us to, to have that. And we've seen that need a lot here lately where people are responding to an incident um, and don't know what to do in those insta instances, whereas this training could help save a life until um, EMTs or the, the emergency response actually responds to the scene. Um, we also have, you know, violence prevention 101, where people are learning how to address violence from a public health issue, learning all of the history of violence prevention, and then community organizing, because there is a responsibility within the community to kind of stand up and take a voice and have a voice in what's happening in that space to say, this is what we do accept, this is what we don't accept. And so they have to know how to shift the norms in the community so that it's not just so readily acceptable that violence is just happening. And they know that there's something that they can do about it. So how do we teach people how to organize around violence prevention within their particular communities? So you've demonstrated what a whole of city government approach looks like. And you mentioned the Ambassador Institute because I get asked a lot by people about how I can help. And that's one way that I direct people to so they can get an understanding of what is going on in the city and how they can help for a whole of city approach. So would you talk more about that? Sure. So our Ambassador Institute is our prevention engine within the office. And this is where we are trying to build out um, an education and awareness about what violence is, how it's happening, why it's happening in our communities in the ways that it's, it's happening and how people can get involved and what it is that they can do. And so we have our, uh, the ambassador program, which is a program that's available to anyone in the city where you can get trained on different areas of violence prevention. And you get trained in um, how to stop the bleed you get trained in conflict resolution and de-escalation methods. You get trained in 
how to organize within the community around the issue of violence. You get trained in um, suicide and youth mental health first aid. But within that training, at the end of it, uh, we then provide resources and ways for you to connect with agencies in the community that are doing violence prevention work. And so that's a surefire way to get some training under your belt, some education under your belt, and then be plugged into spaces that need support for violence prevention. And then for those ambassadors, we host networking nights with organizations where organizations are able to come in and present and say what it is that they need and how these now ambassadors who are trained to um, engage somewhat in, in violence prevention and are ready to engage in something that would be helpful for the city, um, we are then able to connect them directly to an organization who, who needs support. So we act as a conduit in that way. Uh, then we have our capacity building fellowship for our grassroots organizations. We get asked a lot by those organizations, um, A for funding, but then also how can we support them in doing the work that they do in community? And so with this fellowship, we build their capacity to be more effective and efficient in the work that they do. And then as we do that, we then give them many grants at the end of the fellowship to be able to engage in that work. Um, and it'll be over the summer when we see mostly our, a lot of our spikes. And so increasing opportunities for youth engagement in the summers relative to violence prevention through our grassroots organizations. Um, and so we have that program. And then we have the Community Mobilization Project. The Capacity Building Fellowship is new with this funding and the Community Mobilization Project is also new with this funding. And this will allow us to be intentional about working in specific neighborhoods to develop out community prevention plans uh, relative to what are the risk factors in this neighborhood for violence and how do we address those and what are the resources that we have and what are the resources that we need to create to ensure that the neighborhood is, is safe. But it's also a way, again, to get those people in the community and it's open to people who are outside of those communities, again, who just want to help, who want to be that helping hand, um, but to be on site in the neighborhood with those who know what's happening in their neighborhoods to help them, you know, resolve what they see as the issues relative to violence. So it's a lot. I mean, it's if our listeners can take away anything today, when you think about crime and public safety, this is multifaceted, multi-layered, multi-generational. And to think that our, just the police response is gonna solve all of this is really uninformed. So we're working to, on all these areas with prevention and intervention, re-entry strategies so that we can address this whole system and make sure that you've got a place where you feel like you can plug in. Now I'm gonna ask you a silly question is that, is there like a typical day in the office for safe and healthy neighborhoods or does the very nature of the work make it pretty dynamic? It is, and I mean, it depends on <laughs> what your role is in the office. Some of us have, I don't know, the boring jobs where we have to do the, you know, the administrative work, the oversight, the, the money. Um, but we have a lot of community work that happens. And so depending on where people work, our outreach team, who is now located more so in the community, we have a, a satellite office at the NIA Center. And with them, it depends on the day. They do a lot of heavy case management and dealing with families that are impacted by violence to ensure um, safety with those families who have been engaged in an incident and then also dealing with our high potential population who are you know at risk for either further victimization or perpetration of violence to help decrease the likelihood of their 
continual engagement in anything that would uh, lead to a violent outcome. And so constant in community for, for that reason. So you'll see them at somebody's house, maybe. You'll see them meeting at community centers. You'll see them at community events where we're passing out resources and getting to know community. And then they're also a part of our, you know, critical uh, crisis response. And so when that is enacted, you may see them at the hospital. You may see them, you know, engaging with the family. Uh, you will see them at churches. You will literally see them everywhere in the community um, just for the sake of trying to build that community cohesion, but also trying to always know um, what's happening to the degree that they can so that we're preventing violence. Well, and unfortunately, about two weeks ago here in mid-September of 21, we had a, a Christ, need for crisis response when one of our young leaders in the community, Tyree Smith, was shot at a bus stop, and there was a lot of trauma around that. And talk to me a little bit about how Ocean responded. Sure, so <clears throat> once that happened, then the areas of our initiative that are already up and running were in response. And so we have our hospital-based violence intervention program where we had outreach workers deployed to the hospital who were just in the emergency room to, again, you never know if there's gonna be a situation that generally escalates. We know within that first 24 to 72 hours that retaliation is generally planned in that time. And so as much information as we can gather in that time to get in front of a retaliation, that's what we're trying to do. And so we were deployed to the hospital, to um, Eastern High School, to some of the other schools who had family members who were connected to the young man who passed away. So getting into those schools for, you know, those young people who were having a response and then dealing with those who were directly impacted because uh, I mean, his situation was fatal, but we had a couple of other young people um, who were harmed that day. And so dealing with them and, and their families to, ins again, ensure further safety and decrease likelihood of retaliation. And we're still <laughs> working on that, you know, and so still at Eastern High School and still engaging with those families right now. And then we had the large community gathering at the church uh, the, yes. the night after. So that's another one of our new initiatives that we were able to enact after a critical incident where we want to set up in the vicinity of where the incident happened to address the secondary traumas of communities and families. And one of the things is a lot of times, you know, people don't reach out for mental health support. People don't know who to reach out to for any type of support after that kind of trauma. And so we just created a space for people to be able to come together and grieve if they needed to grieve and get support and counseling if that's what they needed or if they just needed to be in a space with people to have something else to think about other than what just happened. And so we had lots of uh, faith leaders in the space. We had lots of mental health professionals in the space. We had over 20 mental health professionals that just showed up and were there and ready to engage with anybody who, who came in and wanted support. So um. I was very, I'm very sad for all those days and that evening, but I was also very proud of our ocean response and our community response. Some moms who had lost their kids just showed up to be in fellowship with each other and grieve with each other. So I hope we never have to do that again, but it was wonderful to see the system working and the kind of response that's so important for the community. I get it. The, um, 
I guess the origins of the safe and healthy neighborhoods here is where closing out can be traced back to another kind of high profile event that led to some uh, murders in the community and it was in uh, May of 2012 at 32nd and Greenwood where there was three homicides that took place and I asked people, there was shock in the community much like there was when there was the shooting at the school bus stop which should be a safe and sacred space and I asked people to come together the day after that in 2012 and they all asked the same question that was how can I help? They weren't looking to blame anybody, they just wanted to see how they could get together. And that's how uh, the Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods was born after a study that was led by Dr. Blaine Hudson, who, late Blaine Hudson, who led the University of Louisville School of Arts and Sciences, and then Dr. Laquandra Nesbitt, who ran our public health department here, and how all this very much has a public health lens around it because this loss of life is a public health tragedy, an emergency for our community here. So. We go from a high-profile tragedy where the office was created to another where the office responded. So we're hopeful that we can continue to make progress, that we don't need the office eventually someday because there's no murders in the city. Uh, the prevalence of guns, the rates of poverty in America, we're the only country in the world that has this kind of problem. And I think it relates to guns and poverty. But in the meantime, we've got to work on these type of solutions and thus your office. So in closing here, uh, obviously a lot to do, and we've got a lot going on. People will be asking, how can I help? What would be your response to that? I would say, I mean, from us, you know, you can visit our website, reach out, and let us know that you want to engage, but when there are opportunities to engage, um, show up and do so. Like there's always limited kind of volunteers or engagement sometimes, or you have you know, the same people who show up to everything. But the more involvement that we get, I think the more successful we're gonna be. And I don't mean that as an office, I just mean as a city, because it really does require that kind of everyone shows up and shows care and concern towards this issue because it affects everybody. Um, there are, we're going to post on our website a list of this is how you can essentially be the one to make a difference. And we had created that list originally when the blueprint was first created. And I think it's just kind of died down. And so we've added some things to it. And so we're going to take it out of the blueprint and post it separately so that people could just readily see, like if I am a local business, what can I do? You know, if I am a faith leader, what can I do? If I'm just a regular citizen, what can I do? And so there are some really practical things that people can just do to be a part of being the difference that this city sees as it relates to violence prevention. Yeah, and you don't have to be directly involved, right? I mean, if you're a business owner, you can hire kids for summer works. You right. can be a re-image mentor. And yes, the ambassador is another way to dig in. But if you're feeling frustrated, there is a way for you to participate and help make our city better. And we, tend, we want to lead the country in this work and the system we're building out is super holistic and hopefully can disrupt this system of violence that's too prevalent in American cities. So Dr. Monique Williams, thank you so much for joining us today and your leadership and the good work of your team. And for everybody else, we'll look forward to seeing you on the next podcast.